All right, Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 18, and we are continuing on through our series on the parables of Jesus. And today, Jesus is bringing the heat. He's not messing around, folks. He's spitting fire. You better put your big boy pants on because we're about to do some work. Uh, yeah, it's going to get real in here. And that's kind of what we'd expect, right? Nothing worth doing is ever easy. And if this is the life God offers us and it's as great as he says it is, uh, there will be moments of discomfort, right? So this isn't a surprise to us. We believe that if God calls us to it, then it'll be worth it. So we walk into the difficulty by faith, right? Uh, let's do it then. Uh, it reminds me of, I used to coach high school football and part of a football coach's job is to schedule games. And so there are 10 weeks in a high school football season, uh, and you need to schedule 10 games. But if you want to, you can schedule what's called a zero week game. Now, most people didn't schedule a zero week game because that means you only get three weeks of practice before your first game. But our head coach knew that our team worked harder in those first three weeks and was in better shape than anybody else out there. And so we would always schedule a zero week game and we'd almost always win our zero week game because we were just in way better shape we had a better plan uh, we would get after it more in those first three weeks and so we win the game and truth is nobody in those first three weeks leading up to zero week was happy about the amount of work we had to do nobody felt good about the push-ups and the running and the up downs and while they were doing them they weren't happy about it but everybody felt great about them on that first friday night under the lights when we smoked whatever team we were playing so today jesus is going to talk about forgiveness and i know this is going to be hard and parts of it are not going to feel great in the moment and there will be real discomfort but but if you keep going and you walk by faith and obedience, and like we learned last week, you do what Jesus says and build your house on the rock, it will not take that long for you to be really happy that you put in the work. Just like those football players weren't happy about it at the moment, but very soon found themselves enjoying the benefits of it. Forgiveness is just like that. In the moment, it's hard. You go, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I don't think I could do it. But if you walk by faith, you allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart, it won't be very long till you'll be very happy you did it. So here we go. Let's do it. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21, says this. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. All right, so we had to do this a couple weeks ago with the Lord's Prayer, if you remember. And here we have a similar issue with a moderately famous Bible passage. And if you grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible with the these and thous or something similar to that, you probably remember Jesus' answer to Peter's question as 70 times 7 instead of 77 times, which we just read in the English Standard Version. Uh, there's a big difference there between 77 and 490, which is 70 times 7, right? So if you dig into this a little bit, you find out that Jesus is actually quoting and using a play on words from the Old Testament. So that's where we're going to start this morning. If you remember back in your Bible to the very beginning in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain killed his brother Abel, and this was the first murder that ever took place. And afterward, Cain is worried that someone is going to kill him because he just killed his brother. And God goes into this kind of proclamation, and he says, If anyone kills Cain, I will punish him sevenfold. 
So everybody kind of knew, don't kill Cain because the consequences will be amplified seven times as bad as they normally would have been. So Cain's great-great-grandson was a guy named Lamech. And Lamech is definitely not trying to honor God with his life. Some people call, like to call Lamech the first rapper in the Bible because he writes this song about how tough he is and how many wives he has and how everybody should fear him. <laughs> Right? So here's what Lamech says uh, in Genesis chapter 4. It says, Adon Zillah, who are his wives, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so Lamech writes this song, and the last line of his song, he references this proclamation of God about Cain, and Lamech says, if Cain's vengeance is seven, then he writes, Lamech's vengeance is, and he writes the exact same sentence, and puts the number 70 in the middle of that sentence. So Lamech's vengeance is 70 sevens. So the actual Hebrew, the words say 70 and then 7. So if you just add them up, it's 77. But if you read the story of Cain, when it says, when God says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be 7, the idea is not that the vengeance will be the number 7, but the idea is that the vengeance will be 7 times as bad. So what happened is when they went to translate the Bible into Greek, the Old Testament into Greek, the translators knew that the words literally said 77, but the idea was 70 times 7. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, they actually wrote the meaning, not the literal words. They wrote 70 times 7. So when Jesus is quoting this story, if he quotes it from the Hebrew, he would have said 77, just the actual word, 70 and then 7. But if he quotes it from the Greek, he would have said 70 times 7. And we weren't there, so we'll never know. And we know that the vast majority of the manuscripts of the New Testament we have are written in Greek, but there's pretty good evidence that the original book of Matthew was written in Hebrew, so we'll never really have an answer to the riddle. But the good news is it doesn't really matter because whatever the number is, the meaning of the message is still the same. And here's why. Here's the story, right? Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Now this seems like a lot, right? I don't know if anybody would feel good about being the victim of the same thing seven times in a row. So I'll bet Peter is probably pretty proud of himself, thinks he overshot it a little bit, doing the humble brag thing. He's probably expecting Jesus to say, oh my goodness, Peter, good for you. Seven times you're so humble and godly and we should make you the first pope. Just joking. And Jesus does not say that to Peter. Because here's the deal. If you're counting, forgiveness is not happening. If you're numbering, then forgiveness is not happening at all. There was a, a scholar I read this week as I was studying. He says, if you count once, then forgiveness probably didn't happen any times. And can you imagine, like if you slept in last week uh, from church and you missed church and you go to pray and you pray, dear God, I'm so sorry. I didn't set my alarm and I slept in and I missed church. Will you please forgive me? And this voice from heaven calls out, that's one. <laughs> if there's counting, that would be awful, right? If there's counting, then there's not forgiving. If you're keeping track, then you haven't forgiven any times at all. Because what's the real question is Peter is asking? When can I get them back? That's the real question. Can I get them back after seven times? Is it okay to not forgive them then? Can I hold a grudge and maybe get revenge after seven times, Jesus? 
And by Jesus quoting Lamech, who was biblically famous for his little song about revenge, what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness has to replace revenge in your heart. That's the answer, Peter. Forgiveness has to take the place of revenge. There has to be no more desire for revenge, and that has to be replaced by forgiveness or desire for reconciliation. So if you want to get them back, if you want them to pay for what they did, if you're going to use their fault against them at any time, and you're counting up to seven so you can unleash your anger and vengeance and have your revenge, then you're doing it wrong, Peter. Revenge needs to be swapped out completely replaced completely by forgiveness in your heart. It's not a number issue. It's a condition of the heart issue. Here's another way to say it. The world glorifies retaliation, right? The kingdom of heaven glorifies forgiveness. If your end goal is retaliation and you're like, all right, I'll let it slide seven times and then I'm going to get you, then you did it wrong. But if you're a follower of Jesus, Your heart to forgive should replace your heart for revenge. That zealousness to repay should be replaced by a zealousness to reconcile. So since Jesus says forgiveness should take the place of vengeance in our hearts, let's take a quick look at what forgiveness actually is. We all get on the same page. Here's the definition. I looked it up on the internet, so the internet doesn't lie, right? I'm sure it's true. It says this, forgiveness is a conscious deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards a person or group who has harmed you. I'll say that again. Forgiveness is a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you. You. So right off the bat, we see that forgiveness is not an emotion, it is a decision, which is good news because many of us will not feel like forgiving, just like my football team didn't feel like running, but it's not an emotion, it's a decision. And, and we're told forgiveness is a letting go of or a releasing, that's in the definition. It's a decision not to do something. The idea is like not demanding a payment for a debt. Right? This is what Jesus was talking about. Lamech was rapping about, if you cross me, I'll make you pay 77 times or 70 times 7. And forgiveness is saying, if you cross me, I will say you don't owe me anything. It's the idea that I refuse to let revenge motivate me. The idea that going forward, I will deal with you in the present and not treat you like you have an unpaid debt from our previous interactions. One of the ways you could tell if you have forgiven someone else is if you can respond to them in the present without using the past. Now, forgiveness does not depend on the offending party, right? Look at the definition. It is a conscious, deliberate decision. It doesn't say anything about them playing any role in it. Yes, sometimes the person who hurt you will come to you and say, I was wrong, please forgive me. And that is sometimes very helpful in the process, but it's not necessary to the process. And in fact, very often, the most beneficial forgiveness in your life is going to be in the situation where the offending party will never, ever, ever even acknowledge they did something wrong to you. So forgiveness is not acting as if nothing happened or continuing to put yourself in harm's way. 
if you if I have you stay at my house, right, and you steal from me, I can make a choice to forgive you and not be bitter and not resent you for it. Everybody struggles, everybody makes mistakes, but I will call the police and I will expect that the judge orders you to replace what you owe because you stole and I probably won't have you over to my house again. And those things are not mutually exclusive. Like I can forgive you and expect that the law fulfills it's justice, right? So I point this out because there are situations where there's like domestic violence or something and on one side is physically violent and then they feel bad and they cry and they say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you can forgive them and harbor no thoughts of vengeance and still move out and still never see them again. That's okay. Okay, so I'm not telling you to put yourself in harm's way or to be continually abused uh, in the name of Jesus and forgiveness. That's, that's actually not biblical. And those types of people... They do that type of thing and then they feel really bad for it. And they say, will you please forgive me? They're usually very manipulative. So I can tell you story after story that when that person tries to get away from that person, right? That person who's been abused tries to get out of that situation. Then the abuser usually says stuff like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. I uh, see you never really forgave me. Don't fall for that manipulation, okay? Forgiveness is a decision not to harbor bitterness against them. Forgiveness is not a decision to put yourself back in harm's way or people around you back in harm's way. You can forgive, you can make a decision not to harbor bitterness against a person and also make a new decision to get out and never see that person again so that you or those around you don't suffer further abuse. So Jesus isn't saying forgiveness means you have to sit there and take it. I can forgive and things don't have to go back to the way they were before. Okay. That's not a contradiction. Now there are people in here who are hearing this and they are saying, okay, I see this. I understand. I see that Jesus is calling us to forgive. I understand that my life will be better. I understand that biblically I'm called to forgive and I'm never doing it. There's no way, Jared. I'm, I'm not going to forgive. I hear you, Jesus. I hear that I should, but it's not happening. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how bad they hurt me. You don't know what they took from me. I will never be able to forgive them. I want to point out that Jesus knew that those types of people would be listening even to this sermon when he taught this in the Bible. He knew that those types of people would be reading his words for thousands of years when he allowed it to be included in his word. And so this is not a surprise to God, right? This type of reaction that you like, I know I should do it, but I'm never doing it. That's not, God's not like, oh, I had no, no, God knew that. He knew how you had been hurt. He knew what had happened in your life. He knew what was going on in your heart when he put this proclamation in his word and called us to forgive. And what often happens in our hearts is that we refuse to forgive because holding on to that unforgiveness is our way of controlling a situation that in truth we were never in control of in the first place. We imagine somehow that not forgiving someone is both a form of punishment for them in our minds and also a way of legitimizing and validating our own hurt. So in our minds we think our refusal to forgive continues to prove how wrong that person was and we are also honoring our pain and proving that our suffering exists and it matters and it will always matter because I will never forgive. And lots of times we feel like if we forgive, we are releasing the legitimacy of our pain. Like, oh, that somehow they, what they did didn't matter and somehow what they did wasn't wrong. 
And let me tell you, that's not true at all. Forgiving doesn't mean that what they did was okay. Forgiving doesn't mean that your hurt was insignificant. Forgiving doesn't mean that you are not worth honoring and you aren't worth the pain that you were put through. And what usually stands in the way of our forgiveness is a combination of believing some of these lies and also looking at forgiveness from the wrong perspective. So what's going to happen now is Jesus, after telling his followers that they have to forgive, is now going to tell a parable here that gives a healthy perspective on forgiveness. Here we go. Look at verse 23. It says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. (coughs) Excuse me. My voice is going. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So we have this servant in the story who has racked up a bill of 10,000 talents with the king. And the king brings him in and says, hey, you owe me 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a measurement of weight, okay? So this isn't even like a dollar. It's like a weight. And the weight is around 70 pounds. So 10,000 times 70 pounds of gold or silver or whatever is going to be a lot. Hundreds of millions to maybe even billions of dollars in today's currency. This debt is ridiculous is the point. And the guy says, have patience with me. I will pay you back everything, which is ridiculous because the guy clearly will never be able to pay the king what he owes him. It's way too much. The fact that the king, his, the king's idea is just to sell him and get whatever he can is, is like he's settling for way less than what the guy actually owes. But the king does this incredible thing. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant, the king, released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I want you to think about how many steps there are between what the guy asked for and what actually happened. If the king would have sold everything the man and his family owned, that would have been completely understandable. If the king would have listened to the man and given him more time, that would have been very kind of the king right? Very kind. If the king would have lessened the debt, that would have been like another level of kindness and niceness. If you assume that this was talents of silver and you you convert that amount to today's currency, this is like $6 billion that the guy owes. So if the king would have gone, you know what, I'll take $3 billion off your bill. That would have been incredible, right? So the king could have just sold him and his family, but he didn't do that. The king could have said, okay, I'll give you more time to pay the six billion. He didn't do that. The king could have lessened it by half, three billion off. And you know, I'll give you some more time. The king didn't do that. If the king would have been, hey, give me all the money you have, sell all your stuff and work for me for the rest of your life. That would have been an even more amazing display of kindness and mercy and generosity by the king. But the king doesn't do any of that. He goes above and beyond any of those steps of kindness. And he says, you are completely released from the debt. You are free to go. This is several steps beyond what would have been considered incredibly kind and gracious. It's literally inconceivable how much the king did for this man. His life was 
over. And the king basically gave him his entire life back. So this is not just kindness. This is excessive kindness. This is abundant kindness. This is kindness to a degree that borders on ridiculous. Because the other people in the kingdom would have looked at the king and said, hey, you didn't have to do that, man. We we could have gotten something from that guy. That guy drives this kind of a car and lives in this kind of house. We could have sold all that stuff and gotten something out of the debt. You didn't have to just let him go completely free. Look at what happens in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He says the same thing that that guy just said to the king. But this servant refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the guy goes out and finds this other guy who owes him money. And a denarii was worth approximately a day's wages or so. So this guy owes him, let's say, $10,000. That's a lot of money, right? The guy starts choking him and demanding he pay him the $10,000. Now, just like the king, there's a lot of levels of kindness in this scenario. At the very least, he could this servant could have done what he just asked the king to do for him and given him more time to pay the $10,000, but he doesn't. He throws the man in prison. Now, from our perspective, if you were just to tell this story from this end of it, right? $10,000 by itself is a lot of money to owe a person. I get it. It's not nothing, right? That's a significant amount. But $10,000 is not a lot of money when you compare it to the $6 billion that the king just forgave this man earlier in the story. And so look at what happens in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now Jesus gives this illustration, and the whole illustration hinges on the relationship between the king and the first servant. Do you see that? If we are the first servant and God has forgiven our debts, he's not saying other people won't owe you anything. He's not saying that what they owe you doesn't matter. He's not saying that what they owe you is not in, it's not significant or somehow what they owe you is illegitimate. It's $10,000. It's 100 days worth of work. That's a lot. But what Jesus is saying is that your actions in regard to this person who is in your your debt must be tied to and viewed in light of your king who forgave you everything. You see that? There's no separating these two things. God forgiving you and you forgiving others are forever connected. You cannot look at one and not the other. So here's the first thing we learn from this parable. If you're having trouble forgiving, you need to start by telling a different story. 
Because the more you tell the story about how that guy cheated you out of $10,000 and how long you had waited for him to pay and the sneaky, sleazy way he tricked you, the more you tell that story in your mind, the more that that story is told to other people, the more that unforgiveness just embeds itself in your heart. Yes, he owes you $10,000. Yes, he should pay. Yes, he was wrong. But you were just forgiven $6 billion this morning. So maybe that changes your perspective. So if you're in here this morning and you're not sure where to even start with this forgiveness thing, maybe this forgiveness is just too painful to even consider. And you hear me say that and you're in the camp of like, yeah, I heard it, but I'm not doing it. Maybe this is where we start. Maybe it starts with your decision to drop that old narrative about your pain and your hurt and your loss. And we choose to tell the story in a new way in light of the goodness of God's towards us. For, for some of you this morning, that's where it's going to start. You're going to start telling that old story in a new way. And notice the story isn't that your pain is trivial. Jesus is not saying, hey, just get over it. It's not that big a deal. He didn't say that anywhere in the story. The story he told was of a large debt overshadowed by an even larger act of grace. Here's another way to say it. We don't forgive because the other person deserves our forgiveness. We forgive because of how good our God is. Forgiveness for the Christian is choosing to value the grace of God more than the legitimizing of our own hurt. Lots of people, like we said, hold on to unforgiveness because they think it validates their pain. But Jesus validated your pain to an infinite degree on the cross. God looked down from heaven and saw the pain and the hurt and the frustration, and he decided, I will not let my people suffer forever. He looked down and saw what you went through, what you are having trouble not forgiving. He saw that hurt and that pain and that difficulty and what they took from you and what they did to you, and he said, I will not let that go on. This is not okay. I will make a way for them. I will redeem them. I will pull them out of that miry clay and give them a future and hope and bring them to my where I will wipe away every tear and ease every pain. So God 100% agrees with you that the thing that happened to you is terrible. And so he allowed his son to be butchered on a cross so that we would have the hope of eternity without the pain that you have gone through in your life. And if you're having a hard time forgiving because you feel like it minimizes your pain, look at the cross. Look at the cross and look at what God did to secure your freedom from that pain. It sure looks to me by the brutality of Jesus' death on the cross that that pain of yours is a really big deal to God. It sure looks like he went through an awful lot to free you from that. And when somebody goes through something that's a huge deal, that usually means it means a ton to them. Right? If you look at someone and they're going through a lot, you'd be like, well, I don't know why they're doing that. It must mean a lot to them. Yeah, exactly. The cross is our indication from heaven that your pain means a ton to God. So you don't need to legitimize it by holding on to bitterness. God already legitimized your pain by sending his son to the cross. A couple more thoughts on this and then we'll close. Here's the first one. If forgiveness is the decision, then we have control over it, right? 
if forgiveness were a feeling, then we would have less control over it. Like it's hard to make yourself feel something. But because forgiveness is a decision and because it's not a feeling, then I get to pick when and how that decision is made, right? You can decide to forgive right now or you can decide to forgive five minutes from now or you can decide to forgive six weeks from now or a year from now or yesterday. Some of you are mind blown, right? Right? I can decide to forgive even before forgiveness is needed. It's like an emergency fund, right? If you have an emergency fund, then you know you're going to need money. You just don't know how much or what for. So you save up. And then when that emergency happens, you don't freak out because you have an emergency fund. You can do the same thing with forgiveness. You can decide today to forgive before you even know what you are forgiving somebody for. In fact, this is what Jesus told us two weeks ago to do in our prayer, right? Our, our, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Wait a second. How do we know if we're going to forgive that person? We don't even know who it was or what they did to us yet. How do we pray that for our day? Forgive us our sins as they forgive as we forgive those who sin against us. And we don't even know who or what they're going to do to us. Because who they are and what they did, no matter what it is, will still compare will still pale in comparison to the grace God has shown us. It's still like $10,000 compared to 6 billion dollars. This is actually how God is, right? He chooses to forgive our sin before we even committed it, felt bad for it, said we were sorry and asked for forgiveness. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another way to say it, he chose to forgive us before we even knew what he was forgiving us for. Why did God forgive us? To set us free. To set us free, right? You need to forgive to be set free, to enjoy that freedom. Because here's the truth about holding on to bitterness. You can be right and miserable. You can be right and in bondage. And that's what a, peop a lot of people settle for when they decide not to forgive. I'm going to be correct in this situation and miserable. And Jesus wants to set you free. The joy of the Lord is our strength, right? He doesn't want you to stay in that bitterness and that bondage. He wants to set you free. Second to last point. Did you notice the way that Jesus phrased this? There's, there's kind of a... I don't, I don't want, maybe it's not this strong, but there's kind of a threat. It's pretty aggressive at the end, right? Did that strike you as odd when you read that? So also my father will do unto you. Why is this like a warning? Why is this phrased like a warning? If I were to try and convince somebody to forgive, I would put on the kid gloves, right? I would use the softest, gentlest, most encouraging voice I could possibly muster, right? Like, hey, buddy, you know that bitterness is killing you, right, man? I'm, I'm telling this for your own good. Maybe we could just let it go, okay? Maybe just a little bit of surrender. Nope, nope, not going to forgive. Okay, now you're mad at me. Okay, no big deal, whatever. Whenever you're ready, your time, right? That's, that's how, if I was going to try and convince somebody to forgive, I'd go in with the softest, most gentlest, least combative approach ever. That's how I do it. 
I'm not victim shaming. I don't want to try and bully somebody into forgiving. That would be my point. But Jesus doesn't tread lightly here. This is an all-out warning. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Why would you say it's so mean, Jesus? I mean, that's harsh. If I'm being real honest, it feels a little bit aggressive. So I started thinking about what kind of things makes a person aggressive when they are talking. And one of the things that I thought about that initiates this kind of harsh language is when the danger is really high. Like, like if your kid is playing in the freeway, you're not going to be like slightly more aggressive in your language because the danger is higher, right? So the higher the dangers, the more aggressive the language. If you got a kid in the freeway, nobody's like, hey, Billy, you're making dad very sad right now. So I'm going to count to three. And if you don't get out of I-90, I'm going to take away your video game time. One, two. No, if there's a real danger and there's a real care for the person at risk, the aggressiveness elevates real quickly, right? Get out of the street, man. There's cars! Get out of get over here right now! And and so when we feel this kind of harsh, aggressive tone from Jesus, who is called the Prince of Peace, by the way, so this is pretty out of character for him, we should immediately recognize that he loves us dearly and that the danger in not forgiving is much more severe than we probably realize. We do this thing as Christians where we bury our unforgiveness and then try and convince ourselves that nobody can tell. It's kind of like when I was in college. I didn't drink when I was in college, but all the drunk kids on campus would do this thing where they would try and convince themselves that nobody else could tell they were drunk. I'm not drunk. You look at me. You can't even tell I'm drunk. <laughs> right? Like just ridiculous. We can all tell you're drunk. You look so stupid trying to hide it. And Christians do the same thing. I'm not, I don't hold on to unforgiveness. You can't even tell I haven't forgiven. And there are people in your life who are like, actually, we can all tell you haven't forgiven. And it's really heartbreaking to watch you try and convince us otherwise that your unforgiveness isn't affecting you. And here's why. At the end of the day, forgiveness is about our freedom. Just like in the story of the servant who was set free by the king. Think about it. Let's say you're walking down the road and you hear a scuffle and you look across the street and there's a guy choking another guy and screaming at him. How many of you would think to yourself, that guy looks like he's having a great day. I know what I like to do on my really good days is go choke people and yell at them. That guy looks like he is loving his life. He looks like someone who just had a $6 billion financial transaction go his way this morning. No, nobody's thinking that, right? Because the reality of his life is not matching up with his actions. He looks miserable. When you're choking someone in anger because they owe you something and screaming at them, your life is probably not going that great. It doesn't look like you're free. It doesn't look like you're enjoying your freedom. When the truth is, just earlier that morning, that man was set completely free, but he's not acting free. Do you see the disconnect there? He was set free, but he's not living and enjoying that freedom. And so here's why Jesus is using such strong warning here. Because if you hold on to unforgiveness, you can't even enjoy the freedom you've been given. You're settling for so much less than Jesus paid for. 
And the danger is real and immediate. And that's why Jesus is so aggressive in what he says. Get out of the freeway. Forgive. Forget. Don't hold on to that bitterness. You will be back in bondage. And I died so that you wouldn't be in bondage. See, Jesus died on the cross to set you free. And to hold on to unforgiveness is to forfeit that freedom that Jesus died to give you. At the end of the day, choosing to forgive is choosing to be free. And I can look at someone who hurt me terribly, and I can say they were wrong. I can say it wasn't my fault. I can say I didn't deserve that. I can say it was a really big deal. I can say it hurt me very badly. And I can at the same time acknowledge all of those things and decide to be free. Why? Because Jesus Christ set me free. He gave me my life back. When we start telling the old story in a new way, in light of the goodness of God towards us, then we understand that new perspective. And so don't ignore the warning that Jesus gives here. Don't brush off the aggressive language that Jesus uses here. You not forgiving is a really big deal. And there's some of you in here this morning who need to do the work with the Holy Spirit in your heart because the Holy Spirit is saying, hey man, you haven't forgiven. You aren't understanding what it is that I bought for you, the freedom that I died to give you. Let's go ahead and